Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Welcome to On the Record. My guest this week is Jenna Hall, Home Furnishings Hall of Fame member, legendary, iconic designer. Jenna, welcome. Well, thank you, Bill. It's nice to be with you and to chat a little bit. So, Jenna, you have been going to High Point Market since before the time when designers were so popular and so welcome. When you first started, designers were not always welcome at High Point, were they? No. As a matter of fact, they were not welcome at all. And my first trip to High Point which I've now started to document in print because it, it's it's a hard story to believe that this great market once was forbidden uh, to uh, outsiders who were not stocking furniture dealers, certified stocking furniture dealers, but that is true. I mean, the market started as a Southern exhibition to um, uh their local dealership by the furniture manufacturers in the Carolinas. So tell me about your first High Point Market. What was that experience like? Well, before I got to the first official market I uh, um, and was allowed in, I had tried to go several times. <laughs> uh, the first time I was uh, looking to buy 40 floors of bedroom furniture uh, for a hotel that I was uh revamping and redesigning and the trade showrooms in New York City were obviously out of the price point of what this hotel wanted to spend for bedrooms. Neocon had not even begun to address the opportunities of uh, hotel hospitality at that point and I didn't know what I was going to do to hit a price point and I called uh, my brother who knew about High Point. I was living in New York, um, but I was originally from Texas and I knew about regional trade showrooms. I used to go to the Dallas Market Center when I was a kid with my dad. So I knew there had to be some place where I could buy furniture more affordable for the job. And anyway, he suggested I contact a mutual friend who showed in High Point and I had no idea where it is or how to get there. And uh, that's a story for the, another time. I mean, you, you just can't make this up, but it was through a connection of his with a guy named Sam with the last name Walton, who suggested I try High Point. And uh, they made a couple of calls and I went to my first show and they didn't want to let me in the door, period, the end. I did not have credentials. I had a driver's license and a business card that said who I was and what I was, but the guy at the door, and it was only one building uh, on Main Street, and he was not gonna let me in. And finally, I used a few name connections that I'd gotten from my brother's friend, Mr. Sam. And I was uh, let in the door and made three connections. And one of the three decided that it was worthwhile to talk to me. And that was after flying into High Point into a little bitty airport with, I think, two gates and spending half a day and being turned away. So that was my first market. So you can tell there's a lot that's changed since then. Um, The opportunities did give me a, a way of meeting some people who represented factories that would with a letter of credit from the hotels and the fact that I guaranteed not to knock them off, which I didn't even know what that meant at the time. I mean, the thought never even occurred, knock somebody off, you know, that's why they wouldn't let me in because they only had stocking dealers and a designer to them meant somebody who would come in and design furniture and probably copy them. And they were all paranoid in those days about that and very protective. And today we're still very protective. I mean, and there's a good reason why we want to protect creative and intellectual properties. But in the early days of the market, it was really just uh, 
stocking dealers, occasionally you would see a woman. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, there there were not a lot of women who came to market at that time, were there? There were three kinds of women at market. There were the the stocking dealers' wives, who some of them accompanied their husbands to market. Uh, I think they came with their husbands as much to make sure that they didn't stray to see the other two kind of women who were at market. (laughs) And that was the joke. But um, they would walk around with their husbands and give their opinion. And you would also see some women in showrooms on a very, very, very limited basis. But you would see women in showrooms. None of them were uh, salespeople, uh, but they were factory employees who worked in the factory and as a reward would come to market and either uh, do the desk registration because they knew the customer list or they would help in the kitchen. Uh, And occasionally, if it was in upholstery or textiles, a salesman would ask help for an opinion because the men didn't even want to touch fabrics. Fabrics in those early days were considered a woman's domain to pick colors. You know, women are good with colors. Pick my tie, honey. And oh, yeah, pick out the pillows for the sofa. And that was really the attitude. I mean, it was it was quite archaic, but that's how it was. And then the third women that we would see sometimes at market, those early markets, would be uh, some women that would be hired to come in and participate at market to either host or entertain some of the customers. And I'll leave that at a punctuation point with an exclamation point at the end of it. So how did your experience coming to market evolve? Because when you were first coming, you were, you, you were coming to purchase product for projects that you were working on. Um, we all know that you transitioned and actually became a furniture designer. So how did that walk me through the steps of oh, how that transition okay. took place? Okay. Oh, I'd love to. It's, it's really interesting. After I went to that first market, I realized that I really had very little uh, product that I could select that would represent the taste level and designs that I was used to seeing either in the high end to the trade showrooms in New York or the very high end retail furniture stores. I did not see much of that at the first couple of shows in High Point. And I was told, well, if you really want to find some of that, a lot of it is imported. Uh, either from Milano, from Milan, Italy, or from from Europe, either Copenhagen trade show, the Cologne Messe trade show in Cologne, Germany, or from Milan, Italy's trade show. I really, you mean I got to go to Europe? And as more jobs evolved, uh, I wanted to, I started because I had to hit price points for these very big jobs. One off Uh, for clients for a home, the New York to the trade showrooms were great. But when I had to buy quantities, I knew coming from a merchandising and mercantile family that there were wholesale markets that I would be able to buy larger quantities at a better price. I mean, that was just my own business knowledge from my family. So I one day looked up the dates of all these different European trade shows, none of which I'd ever been to, much less Europe at that point. I was, uh, you know, I had not only a growing business, but I had growing young children and a husband. And I came home one day and I said to my husband, "Um, I think I'm going to Cologne, Germany for a trade show. And he looked at me like I had two heads. He said, you're going where and why? And I said, well, I'm going to Germany because, and I explained the whole thing to him. And we talked about it at length and he then agreed, yeah, that's probably, he was not in my business, but he was definitely my business partner, you know, my sounding board partner. (laughs) And um, so anyway, I made plans to go to Germany, to the Cologne show to see if I could find higher end contemporary at the time is what I was looking for. And I had met a couple of um, people 
in the to the trade showrooms who I knew imported from Europe. And I contacted them and asked them, would they be there? And they said, yes, told them what I was interested in. So they said, "Okay, we'll meet you in Cologne and we'll help you, which was a huge um, uh, leap for me, you know, to have some contacts and know where to stay that first time. It was scary. I'd never been to, to Europe. I'd never been to Germany. And um, <clears throat> much less had no expectations how big of a show I was walking into, which turned out to be enormous. But I did meet them in Germany. They were very, very kind. They took me to three or four major, major German factories. I found product for a project. And while I was there, it was every other year, the International Kitchen and Bath Show was held along with the furniture show. And I was designing 47 houses for a major high-end land developer. And I came home from that show and I thought I had found Nevada. I mean, it was, it opened up my eyes. The hardware, the configuration, the modularity, the functionality appealed to my architectural background. And I had not seen kitchens or furniture like that. And most of the furniture that was being made for kitchens was being made in the same factories for, uh, for furniture. And that was all an outgrowth, which I learned meant later of the Marshall Plan after World War II, when they rebuilt all the factories in Europe, they went on the metric system. And a lot of it was what we now call RTA, it was assembled flat pack and then assembled on the job while we were still doing bench made in America. That was such an eye opener for me from a design point of view, as well as a um, aesthetic point of view, uh, but from functionality. So anyway, uh, to to make that first discovery lead to where all the rest of my furniture design led to, while the product was great, some of the finishes and woods uh, and styling was not Americanized enough. But because I had these this contact in America who would vouch for my credibility and my ability to you know buy some quantity. I asked if they would modify some designs uh, for my projects and we would bring it in by container. And then I found out that they were doing custom designs for some of the department stores who had big furniture departments those days like Bloomingdale's and Macy's and B. Altman's and other, other companies, um, Carson Perry Scott, Marshall Fields. I mean, these, these department stores used to move a lot of furniture and they would have exclusive products. So uh, the owner of one of the factories asked me out for dinner and he asked me a lot of questions. Big, uh, big chunky guy who drove the most beautiful German car I'd ever seen. And he was just a gentleman. He and his wife took me out for dinner and he said, yes, we wanna work with you and the American market. So the first products I ever really designed was with a German factory and then later a French factory. So my early products were, I was really intrigued by functionality and their capabilities that I had not seen in American product at that time. So were these products for your own projects or did this actually extend and, and he used your designs to help him enter the U.S. market? Well, it started off as for my for my clients because the the buy was large enough that they would consider it and they were and they were cautious they said well we won't do too much but let's see you know where we go with it and then the two gentlemen who had a showroom to the trade said and we'll put it in our showroom so that it doesn't conflict with Jenna's customers we will try to sell more of it to other american customers so that was my first american product and it was high end to the trade. What kind of products were we talking about specifically? Was this kitchen? Uh, case goods, mostly case goods. Uh, some were accent pieces. The majority was dining room and living room. And uh, I did do, um, I did end up designing some uh, kitchen and wardrobe units that were used for the residential housing project as well. And, but they were all contemporary and they were quite, uh, they were exciting, you know. And then with the, so after that, I then ran into, in, in at Cologne, 
two or three other American showroom owners who I'd seen in their showrooms. And they said to me in Germany, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, I told them. And they said, well, we get back to the States, let's talk. And so I ended up designing for three American showroom to the trades. That's what I'll call them by today's standards. At that time, those companies were kind of straddling to the trade and to the retailer. And one of them was um, Hulster of Germany. Uh, and one of them was a company that no longer is around, but Gamble Stole. And they were American contemporary uh, uh, furniture manufacturers in America, but made components in Europe. And the third was a company called Casa Bicay. And Casa Bicay was one of the first to show in High Point. And right after that, then Gamble Stoll and also um, Werner Meyer, Werner Peel, they all three came to High Point. They were some of the first to bring European product to the American market. That would be the late, late 1979, 1980 was 1980 was the first production. 81, I think, was the first big market. I had American product under my name. And I wasn't really interested in it. I was interested in still doing my architecture and interior design, but this was fun. I loved doing the product. And um, I thought I brought something to the table that wasn't there, which was a woman's perspective. There were no women furniture designers. Just like when I went into architecture, there weren't any women architects. I mean, very few. I mean, today, both of those are, of course, a total, you know, fantasy. <laughs> you know, that, that's not how it is anymore. But at that time, um, you know, there was very little of it. And I remember when I first launched my first couple of collections in High Point, they were high-end. So the shopping, the people who would buy that would be the better high-end furniture stores and department stores. And USA Today, on the front page of USA Today, was a color story of a woman designing furniture. Can you imagine? I mean, they, it was it was considered like, you know, I might as well have been designing a rocket ship. It was just, it's, it just was uh, that, it was an anomaly. So you were interviewed by USA Today? Oh, yeah. And, what, what was and, that like? And others. <laughs> I was, it made all the papers. I mean, I had, it was just a unique time in our, our history. It was an evolutionary period, both in terms of the trade markets and how they were shifting with more international product. Enough time had gone by since World War II, and now all of a sudden, you know, the European markets were starting to look at America to expand, and so High Point was starting to expand, and what the original main building had started to add on the Commerce Wing, I think that was around 81, 82, something like that, and they had to fill it up with tenants. And then down on Hamilton Street, they started to have some small high-end showrooms as well. And that's where Casa Bacay built and uh, Gamble Stone, some of those others. So that was the beginning of a very big change in High Point. Prior to that, it was really a regional Southern Furniture Market Show. But by 81, 82, they changed the name. And as, a, as an interesting side story, Bill, mm -hmm. I was in the airport in Cologne, I think my second trip over there, and I was waiting for my luggage, and a, a gentleman was standing there, a young man in a suit and tie, had flown over in America in a suit and tie, and I thought, oh boy, you know, <laughs> he flew all night in a suit and tie, I don't know who it is, but he must be tired, <laughs> and uh, he came over to me, he said, are you an American, and I said, I am, and he said, how do I get to Cologne? We were at like a transfer place at the airport. And I said, oh, you just take a cab. He said, have you been here before? And I said, once before. And we started to chat. We shared a taxi. And in the cab, he asked me, well, he was asking me a lot of questions. And he said, why do you come to Cologne? So I explained why I was there for my second trip. And I said, where are you from? He said, oh, I'm from a little town in North Carolina called High Point. I said, oh, and what are you doing? Why are you here? And he said, oh, I just, I work for some people in real estate and we're kind of looking around to see if there might be an opportunity. Do you know any people here? I said, oh, I know a lot of people here now. And he hung out with me that whole first market. You know, I introduced him to a few people. 
And that turned out, I don't know if you ever met him because I think he was gone before you, you came down, but his name was Bill DePaulo. Did you ever meet him? I did not. Bill DePaulo became the second, I think, and you would have to verify that if I'm correct on this, but I'm pretty sure. There had been a previous, uh, I guess you'd call it building manager or director of the Southern Furniture Market. Uh, and that's that's a whole nother story that you can't make up. I mean, it was hysterical out those early markets, what they were like before they expanded. But he was down there to see if expansion uh, was, there was an opportunity. And um, and the rest is history. They built, you know, the Commerce Wing, and then they built the Ren Wing, and then the Commerce Wing, and so on and so forth. So that, that's how all that started. But prior to that, when I first started going to market, which was in 79 and 80, they would have a reception. And this is one of those, you can't make the story up kind of thing, because it's hard to picture it. They would have a very nice reception for the press and their tenants and their better customers at the top of the main building, because that was the building at the time with the capital T-H-E. And they would have a receiving line and the management of the show, which I guess meant the real estate people and the marketing people, the gentlemen would be all lined up with their wives in long evening gowns and gloves up to their elbows as a receiving line to meet all the guests. That was my first official entree to you know, what the market was supposed to be. Well, that must have felt like you'd made the big time. Well, I, well, kind of. I mean, I felt uncomfortable. I wasn't sure why I was there, you know, because people say, you're what, a designer? Why are you here? You know, I got questions constantly, you know. And, um, uh, but with great uh, concern, there was concern. Um, you're a designer? Really? Really? You know, and uh, of course, ASFD and I mean, all the organizations, many of them uh, evolved after that. But um, in the beginning, uh, interior designers were not welcome because they weren't stocking dealers. The fact that I could afford because of my client base to import as much as I did on that first buy helped give me some credibility. So after you appeared in USA Today, you're now famous. Well, infamous um, might have been more <laughs> than Did you likely. find that you, your reception at market changed? Did, you know, the fact that you were still one of very few women who were involved at that level in the industry? Not right away. No? Um, Tell me about that. So, yeah, so um, I was invited by one of the connections or vendors I had met and became friendly by 81. When I first went to the Milan show, I ran into many more Americans and became friendly with a number of retailers who was over there. There was an interior design to the trade magazine at the time who sponsored a buying trip to the Milan Furniture Show. And he had some of the cream of the cream retailers with him. And they were staying at the same hotel I was at. And that was also very helpful, making a connection and networking because I met Judy George. Do you know who that was? I is? know her name, yes. Yeah. So Judy was part of a big retail company called Scandinavian Design, originally out of Boston, and then she much later went into her own retail operation. I met Judy. I met many other people from Chicago, from the West Coast. That early group was a wonderful opportunity to meet uh, you know, the retailers that were already open to better high-end design and production that was not being made in North Carolina or anywhere else in the U.S. for that matter. And that was mainly because they it's not like they didn't want to buy American product. But in America at that time, we were not making product like that for the most part because we were still doing bench made uh, and not production on a flatbed where you could assemble, you know, the mm -hmm. components. And um, so there were limitations on what kind of designs you could get. So that those people at that show became kind of a network of friendships. And the women that I met, there were only a handful, but I did meet them. We'd say, okay, when we get to High Point, let's get together. Well, that was easier said than done because 
the original Spring and String and Splinter Club, I think, used to be upstairs of the Holiday Inn that they tore down years ago to build Plaza Suites across from the main building. But and then they moved into the old Tomlinson uh, offices at Market Square. So in order to go to the String and Splinter Club for a quiet dinner and not fight your way into one of the five restaurants available in High Point at the time, hotels and restaurants in High Point, Winston-Salem and Greensboro were a high priced commodity. There were very few hotel rooms, very few restaurants besides uh, the ones that got booked up by the big, big retailers right away. So just finding a place to go for dinner was a problem. Make a long story short, I had been taken to, <clears throat> as a guest, to the String and Splinter Club. The String and Splinter Club was a private key club because the state was liquor-wise dry. And you could only have mixed drinks or wine if you were in a private club. And so you either went to a country club or the string and splinter, which stood for string upholstery, splinter for wood. And I was taken there by manufacturers who I was starting to design work for, uh, one of which <clears throat> out of New York and the other out of uh, North Carolina. And I had a wonderful dinner and I said, gee, this would be a nice place I could get together with my girlfriends when I'm at market. You know, I'm thinking to myself and I had like four ladies I knew that I really wanted to spend more time and learn more about their business and share ideas. That's all I knew. And uh, so I so I asked when I was at the String and Splinter how I could become a member. And I'll never forget it. Barbara Gary was there. She was the manager. And I was with Bob McKinnon, who was then head of Valdez Weavers. And, uh, and Barbara said, well, you need two sponsors. And I said, okay. And they, I said, are there any women who could sponsor me? You know, I said, kind of kidding around. She said, we don't have any women members. We have wives of members. And I said, is there a rule against women being members? Well, she said, not exactly, but we just don't have any women who are members. And then she looked at Bob and she said, Mr. McKinnon, would you sponsor her? <laughs> and he said, yes, I will. I'll vouch for her. So then she said, well, you'll need another one. He said, one's not enough. And I'll either what that I'll have my head on out of plate. She laughed. So Bob gave me a sponsorship and I got another one. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to invite the ladies for dinner. So before you go on, who was your other sponsor? A guy out of New York who you might know, um, David Druckmann and his son, who now runs the 200 Lex. They they were they own 200 Lex, the design building in New York, and um, they were members. And I used to have dinner with them, and I used to have dinner with Bob and. That's who I got to sponsor me. So you and were the first woman member of the String and Splinter Club. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. There are women who were members with their husbands. You know, they were members. They could come in under their husband membership. So <laughs> the funny part of that story is um, I called up to make a reservation for dinner at the next market so I could have was going to have Judy George. I had met Ellen Geffen by then. You know, I'm, I just had a, just a few ladies that I knew because there weren't that many who were entrepreneurial or there. And uh, so uh, Barbara said, oh, we'll give you, we have private rooms at the String and Splinter. And I think that'd be, maybe you ladies would like that. Now, in retrospect, maybe Barbara thought that'd probably be the safest idea and break it to the members slowly. I'm not sure because there weren't even that many women buyers at that time. I'm, I'm talking about 1981. It's hard to believe, you know, women were coming to market as part of the buying team by 83. There were more by 84. There were more. But that first year or two, you just did not see women there unless they were married to the furniture owners and then they would come to market with their, you know, husbands. Um, so anyway, she gave us a private room. And um, by then we started talking to each other and we added a few more names. She said, well, you need a bigger room. She said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. 
I'll give you the presidential room. I said, mm-hmm. I didn't know what that meant. I said, well, that's very nice. Thank you. That presidential room was right off the main corridor. So if you were going into dining, you had to go right by that room. And every and so anyway, the women got there. We were all waiting in the lobby. And a lot of gentlemen whose name you would recognize very rapidly were standing in line for their tables. I mean, it was Paul Broyhill and it was Mr. Hooker. I mean, it was these, you know, grand furniture owners, right? And they saw these women coming in and they, and we all kind of were hugging and kissing and how are you? It's good to see you again. And oh, this is looking. Paul Broyhill stood there and he said, my goodness, what is going on here? I can't believe my eyes. This is a good thing, he said. And I looked at him and then he looked at me and that's another story for another time that I'll tell you about because that became one of my first really big companies that I designed for. Wait, 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 wait. Don't don't tease my audience. Tell me the story. (laughs) Well, who listens to this? Come on. I don't want to tell it all at one time. So here's what happened. So anyway, well, for a while, I will, I will, I'll tell you. So anyway, uh, so I went in, we went in and they closed the doors. We had a wonderful evening. I met several women. I asked each one that next time I'll get a bigger room, bring somebody you think I should meet and I'll bring someone I think you should meet. They could be men or women. I don't care, but we'll get a bigger room. So within a year, we took that upstairs room at the String and Splinter where they have the black and white plaid floor and have private dinners. And I asked Barbara, I said, I'm going to, I want that room. And she said, that's an expensive room. I said, I want the room. And there's, and she said, okay, you got it. We're going to do it. And I started networking with the ladies. And I said, I want to do a dinner. Everybody's going to pay for themselves. But I said, I want you to bring someone as a guest. I don't care who they are. But if you think they're fun, interesting, or I need to know, or you want to meet, or someone else wants to meet, then you bring them along, male or female, manufacturer, retailer, I don't care. And we filled that room. And then people would run into me in the elevator and say, aren't you Jenna? And I said, yeah. And they said, can I come to your dinner? <laughs> it got to be, you know, got to be like the black and white ball or something, you know, it really wasn't. It was just a great dinner. But that expanded our network. And then uh, Margaret Traub, who is the daughter of Marvin Traub from Bloomingdale's. Margaret is deceased. She owned a company called Dessa Lighting. Sure, Peggy. I met her. And Kimberly Ray, who had interviewed me in New York. She was with HFN at the time. And we had become very chummy. And she had done some really nice articles on me. And uh, so those two women and I started to talk. And so... Peggy said, or Kimberly said, let's have a good old girl cigar party next market, but we'll serve chocolate cigars. And we took another room at the spring string the next year and next market. And just, I said, you collect all the women, you know, who come to market and I'll do the same thing. And we had, I think about 300 people. And that was, that was, so then at the end of that dinner, Peggy and Kimberly and I decided to meet in New York and discuss aftermarket. What do we do now, ladies? And what do we have here? You know, and we met in a subway, literally. We spent about 10 minutes and we said, let's do it. Let's create an organization that the women can call their own that will help promote more professional women in the industry. So, um, we appointed Kim as the wordsmith to come up with the name, which she did. I wrote the mission and the vision of the organization. <clears throat> Peggy did the financials. We all went back to our offices. We met again two weeks later. And then I called Lester Kraft, who at that time was the editor-in-chief of Furniture Today. And they were getting ready for their, for their conference, I think. I don't remember where it was. Naples, I think. I don't remember. And um, I called him up and I said, Lester, this is what we got. We want to incorporate. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm running it out of my house, but we need seed money to get this thing started. I, you know, I'm putting my money into it. And so is Peggy. And he said, this sounds fantastic. And he talked to me two, three times and he said, you know what? 
you come to the Furniture Today conference, I'll give you 10 minutes on the podium to talk about your organization and let's see if we can't get it off the ground. So I did. I went to the conference and it was all men except for two other women and the two women in the audience. One was Judy George, who is a dynamic, outspoken woman and innovative and highly respected. And the other was a showroom and store designer who you know, which was Connie Post. So those two women were the only women in that conference and myself. And I talked to them briefly and I knew them both. Okay, they had been to my dinner. So I talked to them ahead of time. And I said, listen, I need a shill in the audience because if we don't have some support from some men, we'll never get this thing off the ground. We need to incorporate. We need to hire an attorney for the bylaws and we need help. And so they laughed. They said, don't worry, we got it covered. So Judy was on one side of the room and Connie was on the other side of the room. And Lester introduced me and I got up there and I talked about our mission statement and why we felt it was important. Furniture Today had already done a research paper that said about 97% or 96% of all the decisions made in buying furniture for the home was at that time being made by the woman. And yet the industry and the decisions of what was being shown, bought and made was being made by men. And that research report was really our catalyst. We felt we really needed to bring more women into the decision-making process, whether it was in manufacturing, design, retail, we didn't care, but we needed the women's input to give it a better appeal and sell more furniture. And that was my basic message to the conference. And then I said, but we need seed money. We're trying to raise seed money and I need sponsors. I need a, I need sponsorships. And if you sponsor us, you'll be known as our sponsor lifetime for life. You know, we'll put your name up there as our life sponsors, which we did. I mean, we did that. And I, I don't remember right now, except that we raised a lot of money. All of a sudden, a hand went up in the back, and one guy said, I'll give you $1,000. And then all of a sudden, on the other side, another hand went up. He said, I'll give you $1,000. Of course, they were both sitting. One sat next to Judy George, and the other one was sitting next to Connie Post. And they had worked the room ahead of time. So we raised our money, and then we hired an attorney, and we hired a nonprofit specialist to help us mold our, you know, bylaws. And that's how it got started. So because you have not mentioned the name of this organization, in case anybody is wondering, you're talking about the founding of With It. With It, yes. Oh, so, oh, thank you. So With It. So how did the name happen? So Kimberly meets with us shortly after that meeting in the subway and she comes back with her assignment. Okay, I got the name. I got the name. So we waited anxiously. She said, the name's With It. I said, what's the name? She said, with it. I said, with what? She said, with it. What do you mean with it? You know, get with it. Women in the home industries today. And Peggy looks at me and I look at Peggy and we look at Kimberly and we said, oh my goodness, that is outstanding. So that's how we got the name. And uh, and there it stands all these years later. We're over 20, I think 22, we're going on 23 years pretty soon. We just celebrated the 20th two years ago. So uh, in the beginning, you know, we started slow. We had a wonderful early board, you know, that worked very, very hard with many, many women who really had been in the trenches for a long time uh, behind the scenes. They just weren't being written about or recognized properly. So the first year we had our uh, With It um, Awards Dinner, we had it at the High Point Country Club, and we awarded uh, five. The first award went to, in memory of, it went to Rose Plumpkin. And then we went and recognized, of course, women currently that were in the trenches. So that's how we got started. So even today, now we are 20 years later, you were kind enough to come on the 20th anniversary of With It, you came back to the Furniture Today conference and, and led a panel of um women leaders who yes and and we were actually able to get a goodly number of of women who are serving as presidents of companies and that number has has significantly gone up but there's still more to be done don't you think 
there's tremendous more to be done. And uh, the organization has grown. And we, of course, have our educational conferences. And they're very, very successful. We always have something at market, workshops and seminars. But there's more to be done in terms of continuing education. We do scholarships. We have several scholarships, one in uh, Peggy's memory, one in my husband's memory. But uh, there are a number of scholarships we give up every year. We have internship programs and mentoring programs. So we are doing a lot behind the scenes that, you know, maybe the industry at large doesn't know. Uh, we do have male members. We have wonderful sponsorships from many, many organizations. But there's just more work to be done, and that is to recognize uh, and help promote more women leadership as partners. It's certainly not competition, but we all have our strengths and we all have our weaknesses. And, you know, we now have women who are in engineering positions and we have, um, you know, women doing all sorts of jobs that that were not there before. But all that said and done, time is limited. So uh, we also the other thing that with it is doing is trying to support other nonprofits where it's appropriate. So we have the Women's Health Initiative. We take a group of women out to tour City of Hope campus, which is uh, one of our industry's most important, um, you know, nonprofits-supported health projects. And there are other uh, opportunities like that. So we're 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 always open for new ideas and leadership, and to discuss where some of the issues really still remain. And I think that. We need to do another panel for you one of these days. That's what I think. <laughs> there you go. I think so. Let's talk more broadly about the furniture industry and where you see it going. Given your perspective and the, the breadth of your experience, you've been able to see it evolve tremendously in the last 20-something uh, years uh, or more. Where do you, if, if you were to look into your crystal ball and say 20 years down the road, what does the furniture industry look like? What does the high point market look like? 20 years down the road, wow. Well, I, I, I think before we get to 20, I think we've really got to get to 2020. <laughs> um, I think we are right now going through a, a huge evolution and challenge period. I do think that we have become... Um, it's kind of like, you know, too much of a good thing when you go out to eat in the restaurants every night, you put on a lot of weight. I think we have uh, evolved as an industry. We're very, first of all, understanding trade with a capital T and, and it, as a world economy is very important for almost every business to understand, whether it's furniture or light bulbs. and um, the tariffs and the impact of the tariffs is 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 one of the challenges because, as you already know, many people who have become very dependent on Chinese imports have, as manufacturers, have given up their factory space here and imported from Europe. That's nothing new to be importing versus making it at home. But moving it from China to Vietnam, Vietnam's pretty filled up. Now Vietnam is starting to expand more and more and more. It's a small country and it's expanding. But I see the changes all through Southeast Asia right now are, are, are really heating up uh, for, for sure. India uh, just finished a major project with India and, and seeing fantastic product coming out of India. I mean, India used to be like, we'd say Taiwan or, or China, who would think we would always, you know, be talking about China and, and Taiwan and, you know, uh, Vietnam with great products, but they're capable of great products. India is very aggressive right now. Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, trade shows are becoming more aggressive. So there are other import opportunities but in the meantime, the greatest challenge, I think, uh, is for the older generation to be able to understand and how they can survive the e-commerce phenomena. And e-commerce, I think, is creating a, a very, very, very big challenge uh, to a lot of retailers. Now, you got your start in RTA. 
Yeah. And RTA seems to be the type of furniture that is best suited to e-commerce because of the ability to ship RTA, because it's flat packed, it's, it lends itself to e-commerce better than fully assembled furniture does in some cases. Do you see e uh, RTA becoming a more important part because of e-commerce in the furniture industry going forward? Oh, well, yes, and I, I do. It depends who the e-commerce person is because the big e-commerce guys, many, many, many of them are now offering already assembled white glove delivery because a lot of consumers don't want to put it together. So I think it's pro personally, this is my professional, personal opinion. Uh, I think is it is driven by price point. If we're talking about a and I say this with respect to the success of Ikea, but if we're talking about the uh, typical Ikea customer who's already preconditioned, you know, they're shopping by price and easy to assemble product, they're not going away. Those kind of customers, they're, they're, they're used to it and they like it. However, what I'm seeing emerging is a better customer who is feeling financial pressures right now for many, many reasons. I, 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 we have this discussion almost daily. I know people who are living in million-dollar homes who are shopping Wayfair because they have great – and I use Wayfair. It could be, it could be any of the sites, not just Wayfair. Um, Amazon Prime. They're looking for style and value. Okay, because they just don't want to invest. Now, part of that is based on a more affluent younger generation coming up. So they their values, they don't want mom and dad's old furniture. They want new styles. They got tired of what they got hand-me-downs on and they want to buy contemporary or fresh or new. But they're they're not they're not investing in furniture. They want the look as much as they want the um, the quality or more so, they don't want to assemble it. They're going to hire somebody to assemble it, or they're going to get frustrated with it and send it back, or they're going to pay extra dollars to have the e-commerce site provide them assemble it because they can't do it. They're too busy. They're either working, they're on the golf course, they don't want to do it. So I think that the RTA mentality appeals to a certain customer, either by price or just lifestyle. But better furniture is being sold online today, but they don't necessarily want to assemble it. And that, I think most of the bigger sites have already found that out, and that's why they're offering it two ways. Okay. What does that mean from your designer's perspective? What does that mean for the future of furniture design? Uh, I, I don't think, uh, well, once you're talking about flat pack, once you're talking about ready to assemble, it does impact how you design the furniture. That, there's just no question about it. If it's not an issue and um, they're willing to pay the price for already fully assembled and or the design cycle starts to recycle again, right now we're in a very contemporary mode for the most part. Everybody who wanted you know, great country, uh, uh, traditional furniture, it's hard to sell traditional right now. You know, everybody who had it doesn't want it anymore for two reasons. Either their parents are giving them their traditional and they don't want it, or they've had it and they're ready for a new fresh look. And they're all looking, you know, contemporary. Contemporary lends itself to RTA. Traditional can be, but it does not everything can be done flat pack. So there are limitations on design. You know, there's no question about that. Uh, yeah, you can ship a chair and screw the legs on, but when you start doing something that has shape and carvings and pieces having to be fit together and crowns and more crowns, it, it gets uh, very, very difficult to ship that flat pack. It's just, it's a mess, you know. Mm -hmm. It can be done, but it's hard. So part of the, part of it is how long will contemporary, you know, like, you know, we're in this, We've gone from mid-century. Now we're in we're into the 60s. We're moving out of the 40s and 50s. We're moving into the 60s. You know, um, how long will contemporary really remain the driver? Uh, will help 
uh, understand how much of it can be shipped RTA. So um, so it's it's kind of a, a halfway backward answer, but I think there's room for both. Depends depends on the design. So the way you describe the evolution there, mid-century modern, we were in the 40s and 50s. Now we're moving into the 60s. So what's next? Well, the evolution of style is always as you continue as a designer when you're looking for new inf- designers. First of all, their eyes get tired much more rapidly. They have design fatigue much faster than the consumer because they're always looking for some new inspiration or something to excite them that they haven't seen before. So if you really look at how design gets started and trends get started, well, you, it's, it doesn't start at the Milan trade show. It starts even before that. It could be High Point. It could be Milan. doesn't matter. But <clears throat> when it's in the avant-garde stage, in the early stage, it's because designers have <clears throat> gotten tired of what they've been doing or seeing. And they start going to the gallery shows, the art retrospect shows. They start looking in their history books for inspiration. They can reinvent. And it's a it's a continuum. It's always a continuum. So um, it's just like farmhouse furniture. I mean, farmhouse furniture today is kind of a catch-all term for something that has industrial and farmhouse-inspired hardware. You know, it's crude, it's rustic, it's... Uh, and it, it, there's not much new from that from colonial furniture. If you really think about a barn door, you know, where'd that come from? It was just somebody reinvented the wheel for the 33rd time. So designers are always looking for inspiration. And if you get a few designers kind of on the same wavelength or attending the same international high-end trade show, they might be looking at new materials that have been rediscovered or reinvented or new hardware or new shapes that start a new thing because they have design fatigue and they're looking for something new. The average consumer wouldn't even look at it and know what to do with it. It's not their, it's not what they're doing. It's not their, you know, interest, but the designers um, do get design fatigue. I mean, you know, how many more, splay legs can you look at before you want to look at a curved leg again you know that kind of thing so what's new well you got to stay tuned bill you know (laughs) all right there it is well you know what that's the perfect place to wrap up stay tuned so if you're listening to on the record stay tuned we'll have to have jenna back to find out what's next okay thanks bill thank you for your time it was a pleasure bye Bye bye-bye now 